Welcome back, everyone, to yet another episode of Truth Speaks. For this episode, we have with us Richard Gray, a distinguished member of the Swedish military. He has a unique perspective and insight into international relations, having lived in multiple countries and performing a range of duties. He has worked for organizations like the UN, EU, and NATO, making his knowledge and expertise valuable, especially in a diverse and multicultural international environment like our school. We are both honored and very excited to have Mr. Gray on our podcast. Welcome, Richard. Thank you. It's a pleasure being here and so happy that uh, we could do this. Um, we wanted to start off by you telling us um, all the places you've lived in, um, just by list, and a brief description of what you did there. Right. Um, well, I started um, in the armed forces doing my military service when I was 19, the year I was turning 19. And uh, since then, I've... Uh, had the opportunity both to work in Sweden in the national capacity, but I've also been deployed with the UN to uh, former Yugoslavia, to Bosnia-Herzegovina. That was back in 95-96. And uh, midway through that mission, it changed from UN to NATO. So we went over to a NATO mandate. After that, I served in, uh, in Kashmir, in uh, India and Pakistan for the UN, and interspersed with these uh, international missions, I, I've always had uh, national assignments here in, in Sweden at the headquarters at the tactical, operational, strategic level. So it seems you've done quite a bit, but skipping forward now to modern day, uh, what role do you think technology plays in modern military operations? And how does the Swedish military stay up to date with the latest advancements? Well, the... Um, the advancements in technology are, um, I guess, every generation says this, that it's it's tremendously quick and it's revolutionary. It's not evolutionary. It's, it's uh, It really changes the battlefield. So in itself, it's nothing new. But uh, right now, with the uh, since a long time back, we, we have been an innovative uh, nation. We have a defense industry and a research industry that's... Uh, I wouldn't say maybe leading, but it's at least at the cutting edge together with uh, some partners that we are collaborating with, both on, on the industrial and the research and development side. So we have um, some can, some rare features. We have a capacity to, pro- to produce both uh, our domestic armed combat vehicles. We can produce uh, fighter aircraft, um, something that normally only major superpowers can do. So yes, we are uh, we are trying to stay abreast. Uh, however, um, given the the recent well, not so recent, but since the Cold War, we entered into a phase of uh, what we call a, a strategic pause. We uh, didn't really focus too much on the armed forces, and of course, that also played out in in the in the national support to our defense industry and our research. So we're we're catching up now again. But uh, I think we have the potential and we have the capacities necessary to, to, be, uh, to be able to both absorb and to also develop our own technologies for, for our troops. And then as far as Sweden with regards to other world powers, how do you see the Swedish military comparing to others? Does it compensate for its size with quality? Like, for example, we know that the American troops have been known for saying that God is Swedish because they always felt safer and in good hands when around Swedish troops. To some extent, I, I guess that's true. Uh, we do provide a lot for our troops since we have quite few numbers. We can, 
we can um, add on uh, equipment and uh, amenities and, and uh, technology to compensate for, for, for lack of numbers. But um, I wouldn't say that we're, we're better. However, we are a very diverse armed forces. We have uh, gender integration. We have uh, equality, which, of course, creates stronger units. Uh, we, we can draw upon the whole competence of, of our society. Uh, the most skilled ones can join, not just men or any other category. So it's, that's a strength in, its, in itself. And I also think that we are under a high degree of democratic control, which means that it's the primacy of politics. We are not a force in ourselves, which can create uh, anomalies. Uh, you can have like a, a military that's separated from society. I think we are very a very good representation of our society, and uh, I think that is a strength in itself. Um, so since Sweden produces their own fighter jets and subs, uh, how will they keep up with the rest of the world, considering the Swedish Jalsgripen was one of the... Uh, if not the best fighter jet in the world before the fifth generation jets. Uh, does Saab's improvement to Gripen and Gripen Air uh, push it up to date and is it able to compete? I would say that the um, the E version, yes, it will be adding uh, technology and uh, capacities that uh, will make it somewhere between a 4.5 and a 5 generation uh, fighter. Uh, but I think it's, it's not only about technology. Uh, when you procure an aircraft today, you look at the whole concept. You look at sustainability, you look at ease of maintenance, uh, where it can land, um, cost efficiency. You look at numbers. I mean, if you buy a F-35, you only get so many. If you buy a Gripen, of course, you get a lot more. Yeah. And it's easily maintained and uh, requires a smaller number of, of crew and maintenance. So I would say that uh, in its segment... I mean, it's not competing with with the the really specifically designed fifth generation aircraft, but in its segment, it's definitely a, a competitor that's uh, being. Uh, well, we can see that in sales. I mean, it is being sold and leased to a lot of countries. Uh, I just thought of this. I don't know if you if you can confirm, but I heard that Saab is working with the UK to develop a sixth generation fighter. I wouldn't be surprised. I yeah. mean, um, in between, they have developed uh, a trainer. Mm-hmm. which has been chosen by, I think, the U.S. Uh, and, um, and of course, Sweden would probably get into that. Process. So um, it's nothing I, I have any in-depth knowledge, but I would be surprised yeah. if they were not looking at it because a lot of the uh, European aircraft that were designed and, and produced in the early 2000s, they will be up for uh, either replacement or modifications uh, by 2030, 2040. So, and it takes that long to, to yeah. develop an aircraft. So I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. And how does the Swedish military stay prepared for any conflict while also balancing the threats of conflict? It is a constant balance that needs to be made between growing and having uh, a deterrence presence here and now. Because it's actually the same units and same personnel that's going to be doing it. So right now we are... As you know, we have increased our readiness um, by what we call an active defense. So we use everything. We use exercises, we use training, we use international collaborations as part of creating the threshold to deter anyone from attacking Sweden. At the same time, we are dedicating resources, the same resources, to training new conscripts, training uh, on new equipment, procuring new equipment. Um, But... um, Sometimes you, you simply you need to be able to to take risk in one direction uh, at the 
for the benefit of something else. But right now we are uh, we are currently reporting to government that we are managing to balance because we have received uh, additional funding. As you know, fifty-five uh, billion kronos been added in the next couple of years. Uh, so the only problem now is that previously we used to have a lack of money, but all the time in the world because we had there was no clear and present danger during the Cold War, and now. Uh, we have uh, a lot of money, but we are very pressed for time because it, this should have happened yesterday. And so then quickly, before we move on from Sweden, could you give us a brief explanation of how Vanplikt and uh, conscription works in Sweden and how would it, if at all, apply to the international students at our school? The, um, the Swedish conscription law um, was made dormant back in 20, well, mid-2010s. And... Um, that meant that instead of training uh, half of the 18-year-olds, the, the male population, around 40,000, 50,000 every year, we went down to uh, a professional army based on volunteers. As we see now when we are growing and we are increasing uh, the number of uh, temporary and continuously so- serving soldiers, and we also need to increase, imp- increase the recruitment for officers and specialists, we, we need more. Uh, so we have reintroduced conscription. Uh, difference now is that it's 19,000 that's called up and only maybe 6,000 actually get to do it. So you need to be a Swedish citizen to do it. Okay, so then moving on, uh, we would like to talk about the legality of the Iraq war. So the first question we have here is that uh, given the lack of UN consensus for the Iraq war, what do you think were the consequences of the US and its allies deciding to invade Iraq anyway? How did this impact the legitimacy of the operation and the credibility of international law? Well, before I answer that, I think it might be in order to just do a short disclaimer here that I, uh, I will be speaking in a capacity as, as a private citizen here, yeah. not, not a representative of the Swedish Armed Forces. Yeah. Um, so, Iraq War, which one? The 91 one or the 2003 one? Uh, the 2003 one. Okay. Well, it depends on who you ask. Um, I mean... Um, Apart from uh, the what it turned out later to be a not so substantiated claim of ma- weapons of mass destruction, I, I I seem to remember that the U.S. were uh, relying heavily on on the uh, the mandate that had from the first Iraq War back in '91, so they sort of justified it with that. Um, however, I think um, there's been a a lot of warranted discussion on that, and uh, large uh, parts of the world did not agree, including some of the veto powers in, in, the, um, in the UN. So it definitely had a detrimental effect on UN decision-making, uh, especially in the Security Council. So I think you, you can trace a lot of the blockages you saw uh, later on uh, in the UN, uh, come to Ukraine and in, in, in Georgia and so forth, it can be traced back to that as well. Uh, so, uh, of course, it wasn't helpful. Um, and... I mean, it's still being used by some uh, nations as a uh, critique against the U.S. and its allies who went into Iraq uh, and a justification when they uh, get involved into uh, conflicts or they uh, violate the, the uh, sovereignty of another country. They sort of refer back to, well, look what the U.S. did in Iraq. So, of course, yeah. that, w- that wasn't helpful. Has the U.S. suffered any consequences of acting against law? Well, I think, uh, well, 
I don't know if it's mainly because of the the decision to uh, to enter into Iraq or if it was the subsequent uh, challenges in, in state state building that they faced, where where um, a lot of uh, sectarianism and, and uh, internal conflicts resulted. So uh, I think it as a whole, I think they have uh, lost some credibility in, in that part of the world. And also I think uh, a lot of their internal politics has been uh, shaped by it. So yeah, of course there, there were there were implications from it. Well then, on that topic, during the first invasion of Iraq, some argue that the United States and its allies used the responsibility to protect doctrine to uh, justify their intervention in Iraq, citing concerns about Saddam Hussein's regime and its potential threat to regional and global stability. So then, with regards to that, what do you think about this argument and how does it relate to the concept of sovereignty? So you mean the first war? Uh, 1991. Okay, yeah. Well, th- that was more clear-cut. I mean, there was, after all, a, uh, a gross violation of the UN Charter when uh, Iraq invaded um, Kuwait. So uh, that posing a threat to international peace and security, um, the, the logic was much clearer on why to go into Iraq. Um, and, um, of course, there's always this balance between uh, the necessity of the UN to intervene to maintain international peace and security and the sovereignty of a nation. But, uh, as I said, I think in this case it was pretty clear-cut. So then uh, I have a question about that. Uh, the U.S. always seems to bring allies with it when it goes to war. Do you think that's because it wants, if uh, the because the U.S. feels like what it's doing may not be accepted by everyone, so it would be more accepted or more people or more countries supporting it, or do you think it's because they just need the military supports? I think it it depends. Uh, in some cases, they are actually actively seeking contributors who, who can supplement their military capabilities. Um, and also, I mean, uh, it's a heavy load to carry. In, in, in the aspect that uh, you do it to increase your legitimacy or sort of uh, yeah. share the burden politically, it's nothing that only the U.S. does. I mean, uh, any intervention by any superior, usually they, they try to, to make sure that it's... Um, uh, a political uh, cohesion and uh, a political consensus on doing it. It starts in the Security Council. You try to to get as much support in the UN as possible. Uh, votes in the General Assembly, votes in the Secretary in the Security Council, and then boots on the ground. You get as yeah. many involved as possible. So I don't think it's, it's a particular US thing. But um, and, I, and I, as I mentioned, I think it's both. It's both that you you need a burden sharing on the military capability side, but also yeah. on, on the political costs. Um, so then, in your opinion, how could the U.S. and its allies have better understood and responded to the complexities of Middle Eastern politics, society, and culture in the lead-up to the Iraq War? And what lessons can be learned from this experience about the importance of local knowledge and cultural sensitivity? Well, I think this is a universal uh, matter that wherever you intervene, if you haven't understood the conflict, if you haven't understood the political context, if you haven't understood the the political situation and the, and the population, then uh, your, your job will be much tougher. Yeah. So um, I, I think that if you go into an, an intervention, first of all, you need to have your strategic end states, your objectives very clearly defined and what you're going to achieve. 
and you also need to put a, a timeline on it. Most of these conflicts we saw in Afghanistan, in Iraq, they uh, ended up dragging into decades. And of course, what happens is that the situation on the ground changes as the conflict moves along. So uh, you can't really have one strategy and one... Uh, you need to be able to adapt as you go along. Yeah. Otherwise, you get stuck in old uh, plans and old... Uh, assessments of the conflict all right so moving on in your opinion how could the u.s and its allies have better understood and responded to the complexities of middle eastern politics society and culture in the lead-up to the iraq war what lessons can be learned from this experience about the importance of local knowledge and cultural sensitivity well let's start with the last part there that you cannot prepare enough uh, when it comes to um, being uh, aware of local politics and um, contexts yeah it, it's uh, it's more or less a, a given however when you go into interventions if they drag on for a long time for instance afghanistan 20 plus years and uh, iraq well that was a long one as well yeah bosnia uh, also um, the situation on the ground of course changes uh, with time so even if you had a good understanding a good grasp and you had identified key key leaders to engage with, things change. So it, it is a, a moving target all the time. Uh, it's really hard to uh, to make sure that you stay on top of it throughout. Um, I, I wouldn't say that they had misjudged. Yeah, it is The Middle East is extremely complex. Uh, a lot of factions, a lot of uh, divides, a lot of uh, actors... Um, I think the militarily, the intervention, of course, went well. They reached their objectives. I think the problem, as I mentioned earlier, came into when, when the state-building process started yeah. and, and the failure to, uh, to reach yield results and get inclus- inclusivity uh, of, of different stakeholders. Uh, it, it fragmented uh, the, the country and a lot of sectarian violence erupted. So, yeah, um, Lesson learned. Um, you can never learn too much about the uh, the context in which you're intervening. Yep. Um, how do you think the UN could better enforce its international law when powerful countries like the US and UK choose to act unilaterally? It is uh, a challenge, especially now where we see the, the blockages in the Security Council with the veto being used um, repeatedly. What we also see, however, is uh, a, what I would say is a slight shift of... Um, influence on the international peace and security agenda from the Security Council to the General Assembly. Um, I think they have used uh, what's called an emergency special session now, how many times, six maybe, where a question when it's blocked in the Security Council is being uh, handed over to the General Assembly and for a vote. So first a debate and then a vote. And of course, votes in the, the General Assembly are not binding, for the member states. However, it is a kind of very strong signal when 141 countries vote for a resolution and and six or seven vote against, maybe 30 plus something uh, abstain from it. It's it's a strong signal. And um, if you want to make sure that the UN stays relevant, um, I think these are the things that could be uh, used as a, as a mechanism. Of course, we should be a bit careful what we wish for because 
now um, there's a big consensus on, on the war in Ukraine that it's unjustified and it's, uh, it's a war of aggression by Russia. Um, this emergency session topic um, mechanism could, of course, be used against uh, the West and, and the like-minded in this aspect as well. So um, um, a lot of thought has been going into reform of the UN, um, but of course that means somebody would have to give up power at one stage, and uh, that's usually a very hard thing to do. So if we're then um, if we're then looking at the power that the UN has uh, in modern day, how what would you say the impact of the UN is? For example, if we look at Israel and Palestine, because the UN has determined that. Israel is to blame and for a lot of the provocation that is happening in the region and the conflict uh, when they sent in informants uh, last 2020, I think. Uh, so what effect do you think the UN has in situations like that? And what can they do? When the UN is not present in w- with peacekeepers or, or uh, military troops, it's, it's usually um, regarded as the... The UN presence is light and it's not that important, but I would I would argue differently. Uh, the UN, they are doing a lot. There's yeah. a lot of programs when it comes to, to diplomacy, uh, mediation, using their good offices, uh, helping civil society, apart from, I mean, pure uh, emergency relief aids and stuff. So um, I think the the UN is playing a, a really important role in, in conflicts like in the Middle East and uh, and if you if you look at UN peacekeeping, it's also being criticized for being ineffective, and uh, they um, have a hard time now adapting to the modern battlefield with asymmetric uh, warfare and and uh, terrorism and uh, a lot of higher demands on on capabilities. But uh, I don't remember. I think it was EPON. It's a research organization that um, released numbers that the number of hundreds of thousands of lives that UN peacekeeping is saving just by being present uh, is something that's often overlooked. Yeah. So, no, uh, the UN is definitely playing an, an important role and has a, a lot of tools in its toolbox, not just the militarily one to, to force the parties. And then, I don't know if you want to go more into it, but I was wondering what do you think, how do you think the UN prioritizes what they do? Because, I mean, you could argue that the, the UN has been putting a lot of focus into the Russian-Ukraine conflict and that they've been doing a lot and placing a lot of sanctions there and that the world's been reacting very heavily to that. But then if you compare it to maybe India and Pakistan or Israel and Palestine, it hasn't received as much, as much attention at all. So why do you think the UN prioritizes certain conflicts? I mean, if someone dies, someone dies. Uh, I would uh, argue differently. Okay. Um, a lot of criticism that's been raised in the UN has been it's, um, that it hasn't acted decisively on Ukraine. Okay. And that uh, they haven't played their full role. So if we look at what the UN actually has been doing, is they negotiated the, um, the grain deal with uh, Russia, Turkey, yeah. and Ukraine. Yeah. Um, and they have been uh, not so outspoken on the condemnation. Uh, and the sanctions is basically uh, EU uh, that has decided on those. So um, I think, of course, um, the UN needs to stay focused on on famine in, in parts of the world, on conflict in Africa and other parts of the world. So uh, it's, it's a balance they have to do. But I, I wouldn't agree to say that they have been solely focusing on Ukraine. Yeah. I mean, um, the India-Pakistan has been the UN's longest peacekeeping mission so far. Yep. Uh, and, of course, 
things happen in the life cycle of a mission. Back in 72, there was a, a referendum that one party to the conflict felt was conclusive and did not justify a further UN presence. Uh, however, the other party didn't agree to that. And the UN also said that, oh, we'll still need to maintain a presence. So um, sometimes just being present is also a form of intervention. And why has it happened that so often many of the territorial conflicts have like a temporary solution rather than a permanent one? Because all the Ukraine, Russia, India, Pakistan, and Israel-Palestine have been having for like a really long time. Mm -hmm. Well, um, it's rare that conflicts that don't play out militarily to the end state, I mean, uh, with a victor and a, uh, a, a loser. If you look at the Second World War or the First World War, it was clear-cut. The victors dictated uh, new boundaries, new borders, uh, new uh, countries even, and new rulers that were introduced or had to uh, leave power. When you have conflicts that end inconclusively, it is problematic. Uh, I, I have very few examples that I can give you that. So I think it's it's part of, of uh, the nature of conflict that... Uh, they are being perpetuated if there is no conclusive ending to the to the military side of the conflict. There are a few uh, positive examples where um, negotiations after the end of uh, military hostilities has resulted in in uh, power sharing and in, in, in peace deals, um, but it takes a lot of effort and a lot of time. I mean, you have to have reconciliation between the different. Uh, groups of, uh, of people who have been fighting. There might have been um, violations of human rights, and uh, it takes generations. So then finally, before we move on, uh, if we look at the world as a whole, why do you think they're reacting so heavily to the Ukraine and Russia conflict and posting so many sanctions on Ukraine? Do you think it's because of the U.S.'s proposed rivalry with Russia after the Cold War? And do you think it's because Russia is such a big superpower? Or why do you think that the world is reacting so heavily to this specific situation and not to others as much? Well, for one, it is a full-scale, conventional, interstate war being waged in Europe. We haven't seen that since 1945. So, I mean, it is a big deal in itself. And... Um, of course, uh, with one of the uh, uh, parties to the conflict being also a member of the Security Council and violating international humanitarian law openly uh, and the UN Charter, yeah, I think that's, that's a big deal. What it also does is that it kind of redraws the whole security order that was being created in Europe since 1945 uh, with the European Union, uh, with... Uh, a lot of peaceful cooperation and uh, development. So all of the whole security situa uh, architecture in Europe is being uh, changed by this uh, aggression by Russia. So that, I think, is what's causing the, uh, the level of engagement from large yeah. parts of the world to this conflict. But then... Huh. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Well, then, on another perspective of collaboration and engagement, what do you think about the whole Russia-China partnership with... Uh, Xi Jinping going to meet Putin recently and just the general ideas of China and Russia opposing the Western powers that have been in control for so long? Well, uh, I think it remains to be seen what actually comes out of this uh, 
cooperation. I mean, we saw that back in 2022 at the Olympics when they had this strategic uh, agreement and uh, they uh, concluded that they were partners. Uh, I wouldn't be so sure that uh, a full-scale invasion of Ukraine was what China had in mind when they entered into that agreement. So with the concrete results that are going to come out of this meeting now, uh, uh, it's going to be interesting to see. China is balancing supporting Russia uh, as being a close ally and, uh, and a partner in their view on the world order, how it should be, an uh, authoritarian world order. Um, at the same time, they need to balance their interest on trade with the rest of the world and uh, inclusion in, in, in the world community. So they are, they are playing uh, both, uh, both sides now, right? So not to go too much into American politics, but... Uh, while Trump was president, he had a very large emphasis on having open dialogue and relations to Russia. Do you think that now, after uh, Joe Biden got elected, that the U.S. might not have placed as much focus on their international relations with specifically Russia? And do you think that Russia and China's current potential collaboration is due to the U.S. as well? Or is partly due because of how well, they handle it? To to start with the, with the last part of the question... Uh, the Russian-China collaboration goes back a long time, way before yeah. Ukraine. So uh, I think that's uh, that's something we, we've seen a, a long time. They have wanted to uh, counterbalance the, the hegemony of the US and also of the West. Uh, and of course, they are then uh, drawn to each other. And the first part of the question was regarding... Um, Regarding uh, the new elections since 2018? Yeah, well, in, in the U.S., yeah. Yeah, in, in the U.S. Uh, well, um, I, I can't really say that I saw uh, any major shift in the uh, U.S. policy towards uh, Russia mm -hmm. uh, after Biden got elected. Uh, and uh, I don't think um, anybody would have expected this what happened in Ukraine to to have happened, and especially the the American administration, and if they had, uh, I'm not so sure there would have been too much they could have done about it. Yeah, um, I mean they were after all, and so were the EU and uh, a lot of European countries. They were engaging with Russia up until the point they actually invaded, and even some of them, France for instance, and Germany after the invasion. Yeah, so uh, I think uh, from from that perspective, uh, dialogue and interaction was uh, was sought, mm -hmm. and still it didn't really prevent Russia from uh, attacking Ukraine. But in not to excuse Russia's actions or anything, but do you think that there is, to some extent, a need to kind of resist the complete Western control of the world, or do you think that, like, what what's your perspective on that? Well, it depends on on uh, how you define NATO. Um, in its own uh, statute, it's a defense organization, and it's also a political organization. And um, I would say that we've seen an expansion of, of NATO since uh, the fall of the, the Berlin Wall or the implosion of the Soviet Union. But I can't really mention one country that has been forced into NATO. I mean, it's all been extremely voluntary and something very desirable for countries to join NATO. And do we want a world where you have a free choice to choose your 
strategic and security partners, or do we have somebody who should dictate your national choices or your security choices? It's a fair question. Yeah. You have perspective? No. Um, so you don't. So in general, then you think that all the countries that have joined NATO have done it completely based on free will, and that the West hasn't pressured any of them. Or absolutely. 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 All right. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Uh, thank you so much for coming. My pleasure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, thank you. To all listeners, uh, make sure to check out our new newspaper that we have launched. It's called issrindependent.com. Even though our writers have not posted articles yet. Yes, but thank you so much, uh, Richard. You send me, me a copy, right? Yeah, I will. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, yeah, have a nice day. Thank you.